0: Hello, this is Joe from Idols and this is the LSQ Podcast. I think when you connect to the universe through art and music or expression, just screaming at the fucking trees if you have to, what comes from that is a connection again. You're exorcising and exercising a part of you that is a part of this magic that is the universe.
1: Hey, it's Jenny Ellescue. I wanted to play that little bit of the interview with Idol's Joe Talbot right at the beginning of this episode, episode 102, to give a sense of how much he's got the gift of gab. So it was amazing getting to listen to him share about his experiences as an artist and how he came into an awareness of himself creatively. And there's an origin story there about being at a gig in Camden and watching a band perform so apathetically that he felt inspired to go home and do just the opposite. I also was excited to hear about the making of Idol's incredible new album Tank, which they worked on with producers Nigel Godrich and Kenny Beats. And we began where I often do, asking about his earliest creative memories. When do you first remember feeling inspired to be creative or, or do something that you now associate with with creativity and artistry, like as a kid in, in your life?
0: I definitely had the urge from a very, very young age. Like, the thing is, my father's an artist. He's a sculptor. He was an art teacher in the 80s when thatcher had her evil ways with all sorts of sectors including the creative one in the education system which is now null and void thanks to the right-wing fascists that run our country so to earn money he was an art teacher but he always spoke of himself as an artist because he was and um he taught me a lot he taught me a lot to do with um purpose he never put anything on me. He never suggested that I should become an artist or whatever. But he always talked positively about how fruitful and beautiful it is to have a purpose in the morning. When you wake up, you breathe an air of purpose. You get out of bed and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. You don't know who you are and anyone who does, is so lying. But the exploration of who one is, is the key. It's the making, it's the journey, it's the process of searching, it's the process of dialogue, it's the process of monologue, it's the process of connecting with the universe, sometimes finding something and sometimes not finding anything at all. But when you go to bed at night, you know where you've been. And I think that's a beautiful, very privileged thing to have. And um, I don't know, I've always had it, but I never, I just never had the confidence in myself to make music I I love drawing I love painting I painted all my life really not very well but I enjoyed it just like my grandmother but that was never the purpose you know just like I've been taught it's not about you know it's not about the end project product it's just about expressing yourself right but I got to a point where I was DJing a lot and I thought I saw the facility of male ego in indie music that I was seeing a lot you know a lot of um bullshit on stage in magazines on the radio some really good music between the years of 2000 and 2010 but a lot a lot of bloated ego shite that i saw through and everyone saw through but bought it anyway
1: i would love for you to say just uh, a to for listeners who may be on the younger side and don't have you know and don't have that immediate frame of reference what kind of bullshit
0: are you talking about? Okay, yeah. That's a very good point. I forget how fucking ancient I am. <laughs> well, like, um, okay, so I grew up on hip hop. I got to an age of maybe 16, 17, and I started becoming politically aware, just questioning things and trying to understand the infrastructure of things so as to put myself in it and understand what I can do to be a part of or move away from certain things, right and left-wing politics. This the start and everything else after. So I started thinking about what I was listening to and what I was watching and questioning. it. I always knew I was a tourist in hip hop. You know, I'm not, I'm not from New York, I'm certainly not black. And, you know, I, I'm not from a, an oppressed voice, but there was something in the community, the rejoice in subversive playfulness, the power of language, the power of togetherness and many other things that hip-hop gave the world that I loved very much from the bottom of my heart. And it taught me a lot. I got to a certain age, maybe 16, 17, where I started questioning some of it. Why boast about the money you earn when you come from a place of oppression? Is it not uncomfortable to sit there and stare at your old neighbours and wave a Rolex in their face? Is that not a strange place to be? Why treat women so... Why genderizing so? Why seek capitalist dreams so so much to write whole albums about it, etc.? It bored me, started boring me. I was a hip-hop DJ up until I was 29, maybe, so I never lost my love of hip-hop, but I certainly became jaded by some of its bullshit. You know, it would have been the same if I was listening to fucking rock and roll or fucking hair metal or anything, any scene and it happened with indie. So I move on, I discover Astral Weeks by Van Morrison and everything changes. I start listening to other music. That was when I was 18 maybe. And then the strokes come onto the scene and for anyone listening who is younger than me, what happened was the strokes came into the world and suddenly everyone dressed differently and thought, differently and played differently and the radio sounded different mtv played music then and it looked different it sounded different it created a whole new wave of stuff whether it was from a contrived place or not it was the most vibrant and beautiful thing that had ever happened in my life at that point so i got into guitar music basically and it gave me a new voice and a new journey and then i started seeing the same shit A lot of people getting on stage, giving lots of money and looking bored. To me, that was sacrilege. To be given the gift of an audience, to be given the gift of a plane ticket, record deal, free clothes, and to treat people like shit. Treat your fans like shit. Not show your appreciation, not give everything you've got on stage to me as a fucking insult. So I started a band. I was at Camden Crew. I was watching a band at the time. And I had two choices, I either leave and start a band or I get on stage and kick fuck out of all of them. So um, I took Dev, who was stood by my side, I grabbed him and we left. And then I started Idols and the rest is history. I mean, I
1: love that energy though, Um, picturing you standing there and just feeling this, you know, what you perceived at the time as anger, you know, but was inspiration ultimately. I mean, cause you're saying it was that direct a route where it was like a button got pressed inside of you that said, go do this now. And you were like pissed off in the most positive, productive way. And that's, that's just such great energy. Um, I want to go back a little to some of the earlier parts of that. For instance, when you talk about your dad as an artist, like, do you remember watching him? Was his craft something you would sit and observe or did he kind of go off somewhere else in the, in the household to do his thing?
0: And I, yeah, my dad was um very much, you know, from socialist backgrounds. The last thing he would ever want to be is a gatekeeper, you know. So he would always involve me in it. All his art, a lot of his art now and has been for the last 30 years is community-based. So the community where your site-specific work, where the sculptures he makes is within the landscape, the landscape and the community. A lot of the kids are in the area, get involved and make ceramic pieces that then fit into his work. And he always included me. It was never an ex- exclusive language around art. It was always about the opportunity is there for everyone, should they take it. Not ignorant to privilege. I understand that there's a, there's a line there, you know, some people don't have access to art in the same way I do in terms of education or tools, but everyone is capable of being beautiful and making something beautiful. And I think that comes from a place of honesty. If you make something honest, and you see it and it connects you to the world. That's a beautiful thing. I always saw him in his process when I was around and he was working when I was around. And I'm grateful for that because I saw how hard he worked and what comes from that, which is a sense of purpose, which is all I could ever want.
1: So I'm wondering if you yeah, if there's a kind of a familiar feeling you associate sort of from back then of like even as far-reaching as to standing at Camden Crawl and being pissed off, the sort of, the feeling you get when you're about to make something or when you want, when there's that sort of inspiration percolating, do you have a feeling you associate with that?
0: I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It comes from different places, you know, like, often at the end, it's often in in, and amongst the making of, it's like, I was used to work, my grandfather was an engineer during the war, and then afterwards he was an engineer in the um, Rolls Royce factory in Derby, where they'd make planes and shit. And my father's got that pragmatism and engineer's mind as well. And like, I always used to be fascinated when my granddad retired, he used to make miniature Japanese style miniature gardens and stuff, with bonsai trees and like little miniature wells and or, like a functioning garden. And I used to find that fascinating, you know, being the master of your own universe, so to speak, and creating something and making something. And I I think that's it. I think, like, just being part of something that is made. I love recording. I love writing. I love the energy that we create in the room. But it's a sense of, like, combustion within me is the best way I can describe it. There's a combustion there where suddenly you feel like you're connecting to the energy force that we create. And I think stress comes from a sense of dislocation from that energy. You're working, you wow, it's this thing where there's this intangible force that's holding you back. That might be deadlines. It might be a divorce. It might be traffic, it might be the adverts on TV, it might be whatever it is, but there's a sense that I think when you connect to the universe through art and music or expression, just screaming at the fucking trees if you have to, what comes from that is a connection again. You're exorcising and exercising a part of you that is a part of this magic that is the universe and like you know the older you get you know the more that vocabulary or connection with the universe becomes more complex you learn more words you learn just how vast and different people are you are how much you change how much there is to lose and how hard it is to gain things that you suddenly feel you need and like, because of that, I think like you kind of, the more and more you gatekeep yourself, the you more you feel like, oh, I can't, I can't connect to the universe. You know, it's way too complex. People that say they can't draw. Of course, you can fucking draw. You can put a pen to paper. No arms. Use your mouth. You know, whatever. There's ways of, of connecting. There's something about um, the weight of everything that just makes people feel like they can't speak their own language. It's within the whole time. It's that thing when you start therapy, you start saying things that you've been thinking for 20, 30 years, and you've never said it out loud. I remember the first time I told my therapist that I was lonely. It was like someone had fucking come out, like sabotaged my own tongue. I was like, who is this fucking animal within me? Admitting that I'm lonely, but I never realized I never told anyone. I never realized I was lonely until I said it. And that manifested. And then I felt so much fucking stronger and more fluent in my own language because I said something out loud. And that sense of therapy, that sense of de-stressing, sense of carrying shit silently, I felt connected again. I felt stronger. I felt ready for that week, you know? I was fucking excited about the next therapy session. Every time I write a song, I'm excited about the next one. Every time I write an album, I'm excited about the next album. Or I'm excited about designing all the merchandise and the tour posters and the, and the, the marketing campaign. And I'm excited about art directing the whole thing, art directing the videos. I'm excited about connecting with people at those shows. It's all a sense of expression. And um, the feeling I get is, is the same every time. It's indescribable, other than that whole fucking monologue I've just given you.
1: do you remember sort of the first couple of times you made music like what what were tell me about the earliest pieces of music that you made
0: sadly I was um I don't know I can't remember because I drink heavily for for writing back in the day because I was so nervous I'd never sang a note before idols you know never thought about singing really I had in my head like I also wanted to rap and stuff you know but
1: You were listening to Astral Weeks. You were thinking about singing, obviously. How could you listen to Astral Weeks and not think about singing?
0: (laughs) Well, this was, when I started the band, it was a bit later than Astral Weeks. So it was more like that opened me up to a world other than hip hop and grime and garage and jungle. But like really, Astral Weeks was a turning point into um, guitars and soul. I mean, I listened to soul music all my life, obviously. But like a sense of my own voice, something within me that was actually truly mine. I don't know what that was, but it just it changed everything. But I was too scared to to sing in front of the boys. I'd never sang before. So I'd just get really, really drunk and stand around and not do anything. I started a band and then didn't couldn't do anything with it for a long time.
1: It's interesting. So I, I... It's it's sorry to interrupt. It's it's interesting mm-hmm. though, because you you knew it's going back to what you were saying earlier about connecting with the universe. Like, you know, I think that's like learning to trust yourself, you know, that, that you can trust that, to let the things come out that are inside and that they're mm-hmm. real and true. So mm-hmm. you come together with this group of guys, including like dev you had grown up with. Right. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a trust and an intimacy there. You knew you had the words, you knew you were the singer. You knew you wanted that role. But it it took you a while to actually let it out. You don't recall the exact first time that you were like, "Okay, I'm going to sing," and we're writing a song now. But what was that early process sort of like, and how have you changed your your process, or has it kind of in a way stayed the same?
0: Uh, no, no, it, it had to change. <laughs> yeah, it had to, because um, you know it was like very combustible is the is the word of this episode. <laughs> it was fucking, it was ferocious. It was ferocious. We were fearless and very fucking horrible to each other. But it created an energy where we were constantly moving forward. We were never scared of each other in, in, in coming up with ideas. But we, we were very happy to tell each other when it was not good enough. And that was often because we were learning. So it was like, that's shit, move on. This is why. we had. You had to explain why it was shit, but there's <laughs> a lot of shit. <laughs> And people are probably wondering, well, all your music's still shit. How have you come this far? But um, you can go fuck yourselves, because I love it. And it was just like this point where everything changed. So we were like writing a lot. I was drinking a lot, doing drugs and stuff. and It wasn't getting me anywhere. And then it's that, it's, again, it's that sense of purpose. Suddenly we, we were writing songs and it, it just felt right. We, we made, we did a, our first EP, Welcome. You know, like that period of time is where the first song we wrote was Imagine Communities. And I remember at the time that I was, you know, I'd I'd been studying, I'd just come out of university and that, so I had a lot on my mind. And I was trying to use the things I'd learned as an allegory almost from my own journey. And I remember the first song we wrote, Imagine Communities, it just had a sense of urgency, you know? And to me at the time, I had a lot to say, I felt like this book by Edward Said, Imagine Communities, was a real turning point for me in understanding what um, the, the voice of the other or the perspective of the other in our white, you know, country, Christian-ish country, how it perceived the other and how it treated the other within the narratives of literature, news, media, popular culture, et cetera. But very simply. And it was like that moment, a bit like when you when I read. Animal farm, you know, it just kind of sums things up politically very simply in a, in literally an allegory of a, of a farm with animals, and I like that concept that you can sum something up and you know a fable or a thing you give someone something and it opens their mind up to a huge concept, and I felt like songs like similar to to short novels and short stories you can change someone's life and open them up to a new perspective. that then they go and make their own decision about by doing more research. So this song just like, you know, and what I'll do is I'll listen, we'll write the music together and then I'll go away, listen to the song hundreds and hundreds of times until like the energy comes out and I'll just know what I want to sing about because it tells me that sounds like bullshit, but it's not. That's how it works. That's how I've always done it. And that was the start of it, really. Imagine communities. It gave me the sense that I wanted to talk about that yeah so it was good it gave me it purpose that was the first thing I had was a sense of purpose the song had purpose
1: and what was your idea at that point about what you wanted and what you all wanted the the music to be you had this defiance kind of coming out of the coming out of that indie scene of the early aughts and you had this base of love for hip-hop that you had really listened to and you had the astral weeks thing somewhere in there but what was the And obviously that welcome EP sounds so different from what idols ended up sounding like, you know, after that. Um, But yeah, what was your kind of defining sense amongst y'all of like what this band is going to be or what it's not going to be?
0: That's it. What I think what we had in common was the birth of the band was from that show, which was uh, we're not going to be a band that doesn't appreciate just how lucky they are, that they have an audience willing to listen. And to show that gratitude, which is what I've been talking about with our last album, Tank, is that to show gratitude, you work hard, you challenge yourself, you explore the uncomfortable corners of your own soul in order to make something vibrant and lucid and beautiful. I never wanted to go up and go to a show and see a bored band again. I think the the bored are boring. And uh, that was it. We were just never going to be boring, which meant never being bored
1: in terms of obviously the stage the performance itself tell me a bit about the evolution of your comfort level on stage your kind of maybe coming out of your shell on stage to be the front person that we see before us now what what was that process like
0: i think we had the grace of um as a british expression i think it's british pissing against the wind it's a great it's a great one yeah it is it's very descriptive you know because obviously we were the birth of the death of Indy. We came out of a period where everyone were suddenly very sick and tired of seeing lots of white men with guitars and skinny jeans. So we were kind of on a wave that was dying. So that was a beautiful thing. It gave us time to not pay attention to our peers and make mistakes and go to play, play shows that no one was coming to see us at so we could figure it out which was a long process, 10 years, you know, at least. Uh, But that also gave us the air to breathe and not have the weight of success on us. We were doing it because we wanted to, not because we ever thought we'd get a record deal. We paid for the first album recording completely on our own. We paid for the second album recording completely on our own. We were all working full-time jobs to be able to afford that, you know? And it fucking, it was the most beautiful and, almost seamless experience because there were no hard edges. There were no like, well, you're here now, you've got to do these shows, you know. I do not envy bands that are very quickly successful because I just think that it thrusts them into quite um, hostile responsibilities, you know, like it's not a natural thing to have 10,000 people looking at you. But if it takes you 10 years to get there and the increments, you know, go up every year, It's a nice way of learning. And that's what I had. There's two kind of episodes, really, that helped me become who I am. One is sobriety. When I stopped drinking or doing any drugs before shows, which was a long, long time ago now, 10 years ago or something, there's been a couple of shows where I haven't been sober after that. I'm sober now, but there was maybe two or three shows where I wasn't sober before. So the first time Bowen said, you know, you're rubbish when you drink on stage. You should stop drinking before shows. Just try it. If you don't try it, you're not respecting it. And I was like, okay. So I respected it and it worked. And then so I just drink after shows and celebrate instead. I think the thing that maybe people don't realise, maybe similar to as what you were saying, is that the reason why I was so scared about singing is that you know I was putting myself out there Drinking lots of alcohol is is a you know it's a painkiller. A couple of beers, anti-inflammatory maybe you know like just takes the edge off. But a lot of beers, you know, you fear nothing, and that doesn't mean anything. This like as soon as I sobered up on stage, it was lucid, and the energy was way more vibrant and lucid. And I never want to lose that. I've never wanted to lose that. And then the second time I came around was. Jeremy Schneider, who's uh, the singer in Pure Adult, a New York-based band. He was our monitor engineer for a while, for a long time. Um, he's one of my best friends. I love him very much. And he uh, he said that, and he was drunk when he told me this. He said, you should stop drinking. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no. And he was like, nah. He was like, you're just better sober. You're better all around from the moment you wake up to the, like some people aren't, you are, you're just better sober. There's nothing you can do that wouldn't be better if you did it sober. And I was like, okay, and then I sobered up. And that I think was a big turning point in my life. Obviously it made me realize that I needed to sort my life out, but also, you know, it encouraged me to be a better everything else, which in turn, because of the nature of the way I make music and art made me a better musician
1: you know, a little more on the, on the sort of performing thing, because you are super energetic. It's like pure, you know, pure energy kind of coming out of you it, as a viewer. That's what it feels like is happening. And obviously you're not walking around in your everyday life, sitting here on a Thursday, like screaming, you know, until you're red in the face or whatever. It's just something that you reserve for, for idols and for that kind of expression. Does that feel like a catharsis? Is that similar to, we talked about the feeling of writing and the feeling of being creative in the originating moment. Have you come to sort of require that outlet the way people who like are obsessed with running like need to run?
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you're right, I do reserve it. Everyone thinks I'm stoned all the time. I don't, I don't smoke weed, but that's because I don't need to because I'm like this all the time. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so like, yeah, I'm quite a docile man, you know? Um There's a necessity for it because I know how pure and beautiful it is. Like, it's not the same as me cycling and boxing. That's a sense that, like, I feel like my body has a catharsis there. And my brain needs lots of stimulation, not just the music, you know? I need to be on my own for a period of time. I need to see my kid. I need to do exercise. I need to eat good food, you know? All those things to me are necessities for me to be, like, truly... Zen or whatever. We've toured so intensively, and music is such an integral part of my life that I wouldn't imagine without it. So I wouldn't like to think what it would do if I stopped, <laughs> mainly out of fear. But um, there's a catharsis in it every time I play. But I don't know which. I don't try not to understand these things too much because I just think it's all beautiful and it's a gift. And like I don't, I try not to look a gift horse in the mouth. You know.
1: Yeah, it's a fe- uh, it's a fe- it's ephemeral. I don't want to make, I don't want to make you put too many, you know, physical weights on the ephemeral thing here, except tell me everything. No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, my purpose is music and fatherhood and love, friendship. That's it. So like, I mean, you could try and take one of those away from me, but you'd probably lose a fucking limb.
1: Let's talk a bit about lyric writing and about similarly kind of how that has evolved for you from you talked earlier about the process of playing the song and the music and waiting for the melody to tell you what it is but when it comes to the lyrics how does that process work because clearly you are very specific about your word choice and and you take it very seriously
0: i do yeah it's a weird one that that, the with tank obviously the last album for anyone listening doesn't know Working with Nigel Godrich, and again, for anyone listening doesn't know who he is, he's a producer of um, the entirety of Radiohead's catalogue and Smile album and the stuff he's done with Beck's great and, and, yeah, there's loads. So he's a hero of ours, you know, like Bowen and I kind of grew up together as a relationship bonding over Radiohead. So going into this record, working with him, I had a lot of preconceptions because I'm way less confident than Bowen and way less self assured than he is. He knows himself much better than I do and he's emotionally more mature than I am. So I went in with a lot of like weight from what I was scared of and what I was capable of. And that meant that I started thinking about the way I write songs. Am I doing songs justice by writing them at the microphone? I used to write the lyrics before going to the mic half of ultra mono was written at the microphone that's when i started doing that and then crawler half of it was written at the microphone and i was like i'm i i, I went out of crawler thinking uh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do the whole album next time just at the mic because it felt so free and also quite well, insane, insane, I mean. kind of insane, kind of insane. Yeah, 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 I mean, it. but you know, what you realize is that you've been carrying these lyrics all your life. You can learn the language and you can learn the flair and the skill of writing. That's something you can always better yourself on with experience and with a passion, but how you write doesn't matter. Just as long as the words are there and they feel true and they are beautiful, And fuck it, that's enough. But anyway, I went in thinking, oh, maybe some of the songs from the past could have been better if I'd worked on them for longer. And then I started working with Nigel in London, just writing sessions, not lyrics, but like music. And that was tough, you know, just because we weren't speaking each other's language and it was normally just me and Bowen or me and the Bowen and the boys. So rah, 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 all that goes on. I write one song, Grace, but Nigel hasn't heard me sing yet. So I just stand at the mic and I'm like, oh, I'll just try and write something, just put it, play it. I'll see what I can do. And then this thing came into my head started so singing. And he was like, that's it. I was like, that is it. I was like, do you know what? That's great. I'll just write the rest in France. And he was like, what? It was like, nah, fu- no fucking way. Because his philosophy of writing is that a song isn't a song until there's words and music, uh, singing. And my philosophy is a song doesn't need a voice. Music's just music. A song is a song without, that's how I write, you know? So Nigel was like, this is how I write. And I was like, well, this is how I write. And I tried coming up with a few things like before, obviously out of respect, but nothing was coming because none of the songs were finished. And normally I sit with a finished song for like 200 times. So I was like, well, that's it, you know, we're just gonna have to go to the studio and try and write these songs there. So everyone kind of went to the south of France. We were in the studio for three weeks. Not a single song had been written or finished. No words had been written, not a single lyric other than grace. No one's heard my voice. No one knew that I was gonna sing on this record. So it was all a bit uh, insane as you put it. Well, um, we go in, we start, you know, fucking around. Uh, I can't remember what the first song we finished was. And that was it. We all clicked. Kenny, Kenny's energy enforced that I wrote immediately. Like, Kenny is the best person in the world to help an artist become themselves through confidence and virtue without bullshit. and But at a speed that one might not be comfortable with. My philosophy is the first thing that comes out your mouth is often the best one, definitely the most honest, whether that's right or wrong is different. Your honesty doesn't mean it's factual. And um, he brings out a sense of urgency and a lust for life. And I think that is something that matches my energy beautifully. And I don't want to work with anyone else on my vocals ever again. If you're out there looking for someone who you want to bring the best out of you and, and you want to make something with a, a real vibrance to it that captures that essence and that energy of life, especially from a a place of like love and positive thinking Then Kenny Beats is your man. But yeah, it was like, it was just three weeks of ecstasy really. It was just con- not the drug, the feeling.
1: The original ecstasy y'all the original.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> old school,
1: old school ecstasy, biblical ecstasy or yeah. some shit. <laughs>
0: Organic ecstasy, yeah. <laughs> Grass-fed ecstasy. Did Kenny?
1: Yeah. Did Kenny Beats and N- Nigel Godrich work together before? Was this their first time working together?
0: It was, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it was. They met. They, Kenny came to London a couple of times, and that, like they they met up and stuff, but they never worked together. Obviously, they admired each other's work. It was a place of admiration from very different schools of thought. Although they, you know, they have a lot of similarities as well. I think that's one of the things that idols as an entity beyond the people in it bring is a celebration of difference that comes from Bristol. Bristol is a place where, you know, huge immigrant population that clashed in a beautiful way and created trip hop and sound systems and fucking rave culture that's better than anywhere else on the planet. Glastonbury festival obviously um, is, is just down the road. And that's all with a sense of celebration of difference. Knowing that it comes from a dark place, you know, there's no doubt about it, Bristol was, was a slave town. That's what it was. It was lots of slave merchants on ships, selling and buying slaves. But after that, came a huge immigrant population that made it a beautiful place. Lots of African caribbean Polish, now Spanish after the financial collapse, um, mid-2000s. And it's just a beautiful place to be. There's a lot of parties. It's not necessarily the most productive place to be. But if you can um if you can try and get to bed before midnight, it's a very, very fluid and beautiful place. And we took that on, and it also allowed us the breath to to make what we wanted and make mistakes and learn from those because we had a place of acceptance as our base. So what comes from that is that we just do whatever the fuck. I want to write a hip-hop tune. I wanna write a uh, glam rock tune i want to write a fucking techno song i want to etc and um the bigger you get the more opportunity you get and like just like the ethos that was born from that band that were fucking not grateful in any sense of the word if you have the opportunity to work your heroes and you can afford it do it do it why not and that means getting kenny beats and nigel godrich in the same room why not
1: well, you made a beautiful album. It's We did. It's fucking great. Yeah. Tank, the Good. new one by Idols. Everyone, go get it. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been awesome to meet you.
0: Absolute pleasure. I, I love the conversation. Thank you for listening.
1: All right. Thanks again to Joe for that awesome interview. Idols will be on tour extensively this year. You can get tickets and info at idolsband.com. They're amazing live, so get out and see them if you can. And thank you so much for listening to episode 102 of the LSQ podcast. You can find other episodes, including recent ones with Brittany Howard and Sam Herring of Future Islands and Sleater Kinney at JennyLSQ.com. And you can reach me online on socials at jennylsq.